Welcome to Spotlight, beaming artistic love and creativity across the Isle of Man. Spotlight, brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. This evening, a chat with a man best known in business circles perhaps, but now an author of children's fiction highlighting animal welfare. More from Guild veteran and Mrs Music herself, Wendy McDowell. And another poem from the Manx youth bard, Hadassah Smith. Remember, do get in touch with any creative artistic endeavours you may be involved in, planning, hoping to create, or would really like to put in the spotlight. Poetic, visual, theatrical, musical, literary, mime, pottery, dance. We don't get much of that. Perhaps you could put that right. Just email me, spotlight at manxradio.com, or if you prefer, Howard Kane at manxradio.com. Either way, it'll get through to me. Well, Jim Mellon is perhaps best known in business circles rather than artistic ones, but he's an experienced author, having written or co-written numerous books, mostly about investment and industry, but the polymath has now turned his hand to fiction. Juno's Ark is an illustrated children's story, beautiful thing it is too, takes one of Jim's beloved Podenko dogs as its hero. That's Juno, and the story starts following Juno's meeting with a bedraggled chicken was a victim of intensive farming techniques. It goes on from there to find out more. You'll need to buy a copy and read it. The book and its story is designed to, as Mary McCartney is quoted on the front cover, introduce animal welfare to a young audience and bring up another topic for which Jim is a passionate advocate, namely cellular agriculture. Not the easiest thing to explain to a young child. Jim spoke to me from his home on the Isle of Man about the book, his work, and why he wants to change the way intensive agriculture is practised across large sections of our planet. Right. Well, I, I think, um, Hamid, I, this is my eighth book, and you're you're right. I, I'm no stranger to writing. Um, I can't say that any of my books have been bestsellers, but they've sold quite well. Uh, and before, it's always been to an audience of adult investors, basically, and I wrote a book a year and a half ago called Moose Law, which was about this area, which is uh, novel proteins, uh, novel materials. And uh, that was for adults and for investors. And so in due course, uh, in discussion with my colleagues and so forth, I thought, well, maybe we should try and get the younger generation interested in what we're doing and explain to them through the eyes of an animal, in this case, one of our dogs, Juno, how all this works and why it's important for the planet. And um, so that's that's what I did. And I really enjoyed doing it because it's my first work of fiction. Um, and as you say, the illustrator has done a brilliant job and uh, has, you know, got our dogs and all the other animals to a T, which is great. And you mentioned Moose Law there. In a way, I suppose it could be an ex- seen as an extension from Moose Law, but looking at a much, much younger audience. Is this the idea? This is something you are passionate about, changing and the gradual change and trying to be influential, I guess, in changing world agriculture, I guess, but certainly agriculture in this part of the world, how we actually consume meats, how we produce meats, proteins and such like, was the idea to have a sort of an educational hat on through the joy of the lovely drawings, the colour, a nice easy story for children to understand and and get them on board at an early age. 
Yes. Um, now, I, I want to make it absolutely plain that, you know, here in the Isle of Man, we have a humane, uh, well-run, um, respectable agricultural sector. So this is nothing to do with the sort of agriculture that's pursued in the Isle of Man. But in large parts of the world, including in the Far East and in the United States, most agriculture is undertaken at an intensive and frankly inhumane and very polluting level. And uh, if I told you that nearly one third of all greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture in one form or another, I think that would be a surprise to most people. It's the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions on the planet. And it's growing because people in India, in China, for example, want more meat. They are now getting richer and they can afford more meat. But the amount of meat in particular, and also fish for that matter, that is being uh, produced is ecologically unsustainable. And we have to find parallel ways of making those products, which are both healthy, but also uh, reduce the environmental footprint. And that's what's happening at the moment with what's called cellular agriculture or precision fermentation. There are two distinct things, but both of them are here and now, and it's great news for uh, for the planet, basically. And so this is something you are clearly passionate about. Just a little bit, if you could just clarify a little bit about cellular agriculture then. Is this basically the, the concept of, which we hear about already, and you see sort of meat substitutes, so meat and proteins and such like, which are grown or produced more scientifically rather than coming directly from meat? Uh, yeah, so I mean that's a good way of describing it. Basically, people are familiar with things like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, which are plant-based foods. Now, plant-based foods, I'm not denigrating them, but they are highly processed and they're not necessarily better for the environment than the conventional meats and fish and so forth that are produced uh, and which people eat on a daily basis or many people eat on a daily basis. What I'm talking about is taking stem cells from living but not dying animals and using those stem cells, which we all have, uh, all animals have, including us, uh, our precursor cells, and using them to create bio-identical, that's not synthetic, it's not fake, it's not in any way um, ersatz meat or fish or materials. Um, and those materials can be produced in laboratories uh, without the environmental footprint of growing animals in intensive conditions, without the antibiotics, without the hormones, without the waste, without the cruelty. And uh, many people think that that might be science fiction or it might be dangerous or, or whatever. The answer is it's not science fiction. Uh, it's here and now and in the United States, as an example, and in many other jurisdictions, these products are now approved and uh, they're scaling up and they will be a significant part of the food chain over the next 10 years. Um, and it's not dangerous. Um, it is identical to meat, but with none of the bad stuff that goes into uh, the meat that people in America, for instance, eat, or people in China, for instance, uh, eat. And it doesn't carry the pandemic risk that we are facing uh, universally across the planet, which is that if you keep on feeding animals 80% of the world's antibiotics, eventually humans become are antimicrobial resistant. So the antibiotics don't work anymore. And if we got a pandemic that was based on, on you know, antimicrobial resistance, it would be a lot worse than the one we've just gone through. And God help us, we don't want that again. So there are all sorts of good reasons why we should try and grow 
uh, foods and materials outside of the conventional process, but recognizing that agriculture that's well practiced, such as here in the Isle of Man, plays a very important role and won't be supplanted uh, in my lifetime or yours uh, and will continue to be uh, vital and important, especially uh, for food security. So um, this is not trying to destroy industries. This is trying to uh, destroy the worst part of the agricultural industry, which is the intensive farming that most people are not aware about. It's a massive topic, uh, say a fascinating one, but one that's going to affect everyone. A great idea, as you say, to bring it in the, into this book, into Juno's Ark, so something a massive and complicated subject being distilled down into a simple storyline which is accessible for five- to seven-year-olds with uh, wonderful pictures as well. Just a little bit about the book itself then. So so uh, Juno's Ark, I won't give the storyline away, but it, it obviously involves Juno, a lovely, smiley, if, you can, if a dog can smile, a lovely, happy-looking dog who bumps into this bedraggled chicken and it starts his adventures and other animals he discovers how they're being mistreated and so on and you need to read the book to find out more but the storyline itself did that sort of just come to you was it something that was inspired by your own dogs or something that you thought oh you know what i know exactly what i can do with this well juno is one of our dogs and she's the top dog as we keep on calling her um uh, and she uh lives mostly in ibiza because she's an ibethan hound uh we have seven dogs all together um and I can say that four of them have been regular visitors to the Isle of Man and like it very much. But we keep them on a lead here because their natural instinct is to chase bunnies. Um, and um, we don't want them chasing bunnies and falling over Brad ahead. And uh, so they're, they're on a lead. Uh, and there are other Podenko dogs in the Isle of Man. My friend Darren Bell has a couple who are beautiful, long-haired Podenkos. But they're quite rare dogs. Um, and... Uh, they are native to Ibiza and they are badly treated, generally speaking. So all of our dogs are rescue dogs and all the profits from this book go to a dog shelter in Ibiza where Podenkos are looked after and also to Compassion and World Farming, which is trying to reduce uh, the cruelty in intensive farming, which is the worst kind of farming. And it, this has been, you know, it's a labor of love. I hope that it gets an audience and it's going to be on sale. And, you know, I know that Waterstones, for instance, has a branch here in Douglas because I pass it every day. And it's going to be in WH Smith and it's going to be on Amazon and all the usual channels. But as, as I say, all the money goes to charity and uh, worthwhile charities, which I think most people would support if they knew what they did. Absolutely. And uh, you must be very pleased with the finished articles. It looks fantastic. It's beautifully produced. Uh, and a word as well for uh, the illustrations as well. Uh, Simone Fumagalli, uh, the illustrations really bring the whole thing alive. He does. He's done an absolutely brilliant job. And you know, Howard, I'm really appreciative of you at Manx Radio taking an interest in this book. And I have to say that the first thing I look at every morning is Manx Radio News from uh, from your station. And um, I just love what you do. So, uh, and it, it brings me back home when I'm I'm not here, if you know what I mean. So it's, uh, I really appreciate you taking an interest in it. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Fascinating. It's uh, a great sort of branch out. Uh, just a final question would be, if you go right to the back, it says, until next time, does that suggest there might be a volume two or more adventures from Juno? Um, uh, Juno's already planning her next adventure. I've written uh, about half of it already. 
and it'll come out probably at the end of this year, maybe the beginning of next year. And it's going to be not about animals. It's going to be about uh, new novel sources of energy. And uh, you know, June is a very versatile dog. She's very intelligent, and she she's taking a, a, a deep interest in in how we can change the energy supply to benefit mankind and dog kind. <laughs> Well, Jim, many, many thanks for talking to us today. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Howard. It's a lovely little book, beautiful illustrations, bringing attention to a massive and complex topic, how a lot of the food we eat is created and the treatment of animals in a commercial environment. All the profits go to two charities, Compassion and World Farming, and a shelter specifically for Pedenko dogs near Jim's home in Ibiza. As Jim himself said, the next volume of Juno's Adventures is due out later this year or possibly early next year. And he admits that writing fiction has been much more enjoyable than working on his numerous non-fiction titles. Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Now, we had the first part of little chat that Judith Lay had with the ever-busy musician extraordinaire Wendy McDowell last week. Wendy had been down at the Guild. Amazing to think it's finished again already. As Wendy has been for countless years, where she had enjoyed success in the duet class with Kath Blackburn. Wendy also, of course, very well known as an accompanist at the Guild over the years. Not always an easy task, as Judith suggested to her. Would it be right to say that sometimes the perhaps nerves overcome the singer and you've just got to have to, to cope with perhaps little changes oh, on the, the actual perform- moment of performance? Yes. Got to be aware. As long oh, as yes, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure of it. Because what you're trying to do is, is really to show the performer at their best, aren't you? Absolutely. It's the performer that's the, there in the, having to do it and you're in the background, but you've got to support them in the best way you can, really. The nice thing is that the adjudicators always do pay tribute to the accompanists, don't they? They do, they do. I think they do appreciate, they, certainly the adjudicators appreciate the accompanists very much, yes. Would you say, Wendy, that over the years, the style of adjudication or the way that adjudication is done, has that changed? Oh, I think so. I think, uh, you know, from from the audience point of view, I think it's lovely if the adjudicator can make it very, very pleasant, you know, and not be too critical because they put all their critical things on a sheet which the competitor can read afterwards but adjudicators this year have been very very supportive and um, making the whole thing fun for everybody because sometimes you know it's a little bit serious and going into a lot of details that the audience don't understand but the competitors will if they read their sheets and so on so I think you know it's a happy medium really. Yes they need to be able to take that adjudication sheet and talk to their teacher about it and see what can be taken from that but I find sitting in the audience there's always something to be learned from listening to the adjudication if it's kept at a as you say at a general level. Yes I mean I did have to adjudicate I had to be an adjudicator once in Ireland and all I'll say is that was the once and only that I will do. <laughs> I found it very difficult. I mean, not so much picking the winners or so on, but the time you have to get everything into the right time. So I, I fully appreciate what they do, these adjudicators. That's the thing that's the worst thing, the pressure of yes. the time, that you've got to get there and you've got to make your decisions and then you've got to think of something to say. 
So it's a, it's a very, very difficult job. Wendy, I love stories of how the Guild was when there would be 5,000 people in the audience oh, for yes. the Cleveland Met. The atmosphere must have been amazing. It was amazing. I just remember when my dad won the Cleveland Medal and it was in the Palace Ballroom and it was absolutely packed. It really was. And I was only quite small, but I remember it very, very clearly. It's still a big night, you know. It is, of course it is. It is very, very important, I think, the Cleveland Medal. I always felt it was very important, you know. Yes, and, and this, in its hundredth year, yeah. particularly special. Now, you talk about, as a child, you were part of a great musical family. You're still part of a great musical family because your own daughters, who live across, are deeply involved in music, music theatre, aren't they? they? They certainly are. In fact, my eldest daughter was here last week. There was a reunion of the Manx Youth Choir from Alan Pickard's day. And I won't say what age they all are now, but they are maturing. And um, they had a lovely day last weekend. And they did the foray requiem and one or two other things. And Janet, my daughter, came to conduct. So it was a lovely occasion. And then a concert in the evening. So I was quite proud of that. And the two girls are actually in the process of producing a show for the Minac Theatre in Cornwall. That's at the end of May. Their society goes from London for the whole week, and it's a holiday, really, but they they perform at the Minac Theatre, which is the one on the cliffs. They've been doing it for 20 years. Well, I know they've been doing it for 20 years because I've been going every two years for 20 years. And my my grandchildren have all been in the various shows up through the years, and they're all in their 20s now and, and grown up. But um, it's a most wonderful um, magic experience, really. But um, Debbie this year is directing the show, and Janet is musical director, so it's a bit special this year for me. Well, I'm sure so, and uh, wish you all well for that. But when you say to me that you're going to see the family, there's always a bit of music for you involved. Sometimes you've got to take a rehearsal or or a company, haven't you? Well, I'll tell you a little secret, that when I was away the last time, I had to play for one of my daughter's uh, pupils in a festival in Richmond. And... She was home last week and she looked through the... Oh, she said it's the adjudicator that was adjudicating in Richmond. Uh, so this, that connection goes through. But it wasn't that interesting. In, indeed it is. And I, isn't it lovely that you're keeping this musical tradition with your daughters, with your grandchildren, that you're keeping it in the family? Yes, it is. And my grandson, he's just 16 last week, he, he hadn't had a piano lesson. The others all had piano singing lessons, etc. Uh, he had guitar lessons, and um, his guitar teacher had the foresight to show him how to do the chords on the piano, and he is now absolutely Elton John. You know, he's playing for himself, he's composing, he's singing along and playing for himself. And I'm so... First time I heard him do it, I thought, I can't believe this, but he can play things I can't play. (laughs) He's more into the drama, really, than his music, but because he's so into the drama, uh, which is taking after his granddad a little bit, you know, because my husband was, um, well, he was musical as well, but uh, very much on the drama side. So um, Charlie is following in granddad's footsteps there. I saw him in Guys and Dolls with a Frank Sinatra part, you know, and, um, you know, these things are very moving when you see your grandchildren taking Of course they are. And and isn't that lovely that that your late husband, 
Wiley. You can see the spirit oh, coming through in Charlie. Absolutely. You know, he really is. Yes, yes. You've just won the piano duet class with your good friend and fellow pianist, Kath Blackburn. Yeah. And it was two contrasting pieces. And T for Two, very, very lovely arrangement. But the, the other piece that you chose, it's got a lot of notes in it, hasn't it? It has. But, do you know, it's one of our favourites, really. I think it might have been the first piece we ever played together in the Guild as a piano duet. So it's nice that we've done it again this year. Wendy McDowell, absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. But thank you very much for talking to me. We heard a little piece of that lovely version of T for Two last week. So let's hear that other winning piece of the duet with Wendy and Kath Blackburn. A little poetry to end, perhaps, and something seasonal from the Manx youth bard Hadassah Smith. A day in spring. The breeze rustles my hair as the sky of blue and orange battle each other. The leaves and flowers of green and pink envelop me with the sense of radiant warmth as the sun beams upon my icy skin. The crisp early morning dew satisfies me as I pace down the path near the rich pond of gold, soothing my mind like a blanket wrapped around baby. 
The vivid colours sweep across my eyes like a rainbow and stop me in my tracks, allowing me to gaze upon the hills of rolling green and its governing bulb of light. And I think Hadassah has that curious dichotomy of spring absolutely right. The promise of warmth, but ever-present chills never far away to catch out the unwary. That's about it for this week. Don't forget, if you want to hear anything again, go to maxradio.com, download the Spotlight podcast, listen where you want. Why not try it while sewing a line or two of your favourite peas? See you next week. Look after yourselves, and whatever you're doing, be creative about it. Cheerio. Cheerio.